Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Putting aside a short detour for Thanksgiving, in our last general episode, we investigated the immortal words of we the people of the United States from the preamble of the Constitution. Today, we will continue to explore the preamble. As is the Patriot Lessons way, we do this exploration carefully and deliberately, clause by clause. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett and Sheila Guerin. Thank you for your support. Mike Gerard will get us started. Before we dive right in, let's revisit the wondrous language of the preamble. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. As we discussed, the Constitutional Convention appointed a committee of style and arrangement to pull together 23 separate resolutions into one overarching document. Governor Morris was the main draftsman, including the preamble. We the people of the United States was used both as a matter of convenience to eliminate the concern of listing the states which adopted the Constitution, since no one knew which states would actually ratify the Constitution, and it also conveniently reflected the fundamental transformation of the federal government away from a confederation of states, as embodied in the Articles of Confederation, into one that rested on the people. The next phrase is, in order to form a more perfect union, and this reflected... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on just a minute, Mike Gerard. I think our listeners deserve to learn a little bit more about what was driving the committee's style and arrangement. Renowned historian Catherine Brinker Bowen explained that the committee's primary draftsmen took into consideration the great months-long debate, and the committee tried to incorporate the minority as well as prevailing views in the preamble. In Morris's mind, in the committee's mind, echoed the words and arguments of a long summer. The five men came well primed for their task. These 23 articles were the result of battle, harangue, and compromise. Always let losers have their words. Sir Francis Bacon said it two centuries before, giving advice to himself as a young lawyer. In creating the United States Constitution, every loser surely had his words. To this fact, the system owed its strength, and if the new government was indeed a revolution, it carried an advantage few revolutions have shown. No central power, no leader swept it into being. Here was a fusion which owed its validity, not least to the descendants. The committee's style, conscious of the fact, did its work accordingly. Thanks, Judge, for reminding us of the monumental task facing the Committee of Style and Arrangement and how they succeeded with much grace. They sure did. We sometimes take for granted how ingenious they were. After we the people of the United States came pure genius. I think Bowen has more to say about that. These seven verbs rode out to form, establish, ensure, Provide, promote, secure, ordain. One might challenge the centuries to better these verbs. Did Moore study over them, or did they come easily from his pen? A grace was necessary, Morris believed, 
for good historical writing and harmony and muscles. Morris was setting down a working instrument of government which must be made plain, brief, and strategically a trifle vague in places to give play for future circumstance. Thanks, bombastic Brent Bassett, for introducing yet another brilliant passage from Catherine Brinker Bowen. Alrighty, now before I'm interrupted again, let's address how after we the people of the United States comes the vital phrase in order to form a more perfect union. As we have explored in prior episodes, the state of the union under the Articles of Confederation was a mess. Thirteen sovereign states had agreed to authorize the Congress to undertake limited actions under limited circumstances, which limited actions were not usually authorized, and on the rare occasion they were authorized, those limited, rare actions were often not effectuated. Meanwhile, the states were working at cross-purposes. The economy was facing a huge depression. Trade wars among the states were ongoing, contracts were voided, courthouses were being overrun and shut down, paper money was inciting huge inflation, insurrections and small eruptions had happened and more seemed to be on the horizon, and states were conducting their own foreign affairs. Foreign nations looked down on the states as feeble, gleefully waiting for the Congress to collapse and the Confederation to unwind. Mess really is too tepid a word. It was chaos. Edmund Randolph summarized the dire crisis as follows. Our perilous situation in the American Revolution was the cement of our union. How different the scene when this peril vanished and peace was restored. The demands of Congress were treated with neglect. One state complained that another had not paid its quotas as well as itself. Public credit gone, were it not for the private credit of individuals, we should have been ruined. Commerce languishing, produce falling in value and justice trampled underfoot. We became contemptible in the eyes of foreign nations that discarded us as little wanton bees who had played for liberty but who had not sufficient solidity or wisdom to secure it on a permanent basis and were therefore unworthy of their regard. It was found that Congress could not even enforce the observance of treaties. This could not continue without jeopardizing everything. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney recognized this with vivid insight. Pinckney was a delegate at the Constitutional Convention representing South Carolina, Pinckney was born in Charleston, South Carolina in 1746, the son of the Chief Justice of the colony. The family moved to England when his father was appointed the agent of South Carolina for the empire. He was educated at Westminster and Christ Church College at Oxford and learned at the hand of the enormously influential legal scholar William Blackstone. When he returned to America in 1769, Pinckney was quickly elected to the South Carolina legislature, served in the Provincial Congress, and served as a major and then colonel in the militia. He was an aide to George Washington at the Battles of Brandywine and Germantown and fought in Florida and Georgia. When Charleston was captured by the British, he became a prisoner of war and eventually was released in a prisoner exchange. By the end of the Revolutionary War, he was a brigadier general. Afterwards, Pinckney served in the South Carolina legislature in the House and later as the President of the State Senate. 
With the ratification of the Constitution, he turned down George Washington's request to be appointed to the United States Supreme Court, Secretary of War, and Secretary of State. He served as a diplomat and ran for vice president in 1800 and president in 1804 and 1808. Pinckney stood up on the floor of the convention and charged that failing to create a firm union would ensure that internal divisions would lead to domestic turmoil, if not foreign invasion. Any issue that affected all 13 states could not be addressed in an effective fashion by the current Congress. The former general and leading political leader railed that the bare basics of a nation did not exist and that commerce and the blessings of liberty were endangered by the status quo. Single and unconnected, how weak and contemptible are the largest of our states, how unable to protect themselves from external or domestic insult, how incompetent to national purposes would our partial unions be, how liable to interesting wars and confusion, how little able to secure the blessings of peace. Pinckney's view was widely held. The current chaos was threatening the very viability of the American experiment. Everything that the American Revolution had been fought for seemed to be at risk of utter failure. With no real union, there would be no chance for liberty to be saved. An anonymous but most persuasive writer strongly echoed this view in the Hampshire Gazette. Can you, my fellow countrymen, on a question of existence as a nation, hesitate in your decision whether to be united and powerful, each supporting the dignity of the other, or to be divided into petty states? each seeking and contending for its own local advantages, and like the bundle of twig which separated, was easily destroyed by an old and infirm man. Unite or die has been a successful motto to this country. Never was it more applicable than at this moment. In a letter to Thomas Jefferson, who was in Paris during the Constitutional Convention, James Madison explained that this disunity was inherent in the Articles of Confederation. Without a binding, coercive power controlling national affairs, the Union would always be in peril. The Articles of Confederation theoretically gave substantial power to the federal government, but it had to rely on the good faith of the states to fulfill their obligations. Years of experience revealed that would never happen. At the convention, it was generally agreed that the objects of the Union could not be secured by any system founded on the principle of a confederation of sovereign states. A voluntary observance of the federal law by all the members could never be hoped for. A compulsive one could evidently never be reduced to practice, and if it could, involved equal calamities to the innocent and the guilty, the necessity of the military force, both obnoxious and dangerous and in general, a scene resembling much more a civil war than the administration of a regular government. True, the Articles of Confederation had held the states together during the American Revolution. But, as Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph realistically reflected at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, that in no manner meant that the states would hold together in the future. 
Behold then how successful and glorious we have been while we acted in fraternal concord. But let us disguise the illusion that by this success and this glory, the crest of danger has irrecoverably fallen. Our governments are yet too youthful to have acquired stability from habit. Randolph understated the point. It was not that the states were too youthful to have acquired stability. It was the opposite. They were youthful enough to adopt habits of instability. Hence, the paper money, the closing of courts, the trade wars, the competing foreign policies. It was a dire circumstance. Randolph clearly saw that if the states kept up their infighting and fractured relations, the future was quite bleak. He even warned that if the states were not able to unite, some might fall to foreign intrigue and even monarchy. Randolph's concerns were widely shared. Although some were arguing that the Confederation of States would hold, darkening storm clouds were overhead. Why should the founding generation expect something to change under the Articles of Confederation? In fact, ancient history revealed that a confederation of republics was all but certain to collapse. Alexander Hamilton articulated the concern quite ably. From this summary of what has taken place in other countries, including Sparta, Athens, Rome, Carthage, Venice, Holland, Britain, Austria, France, whose situations have borne the nearest resemblance to our own, what reason can we have to confide in those reveries which could seduce us into an expectation of peace and cordiality between the members of the present confederacy and a state of separation? In fact, the downward spiral was already happening. Hamilton pointed to Shays' Rebellion and other lesser domestic turmoil in North Carolina and Pennsylvania as but a taste of what America would be facing. That the states would be peaceful without a strong central government was a flight of fancy that should be shaken off as soon as possible. Is it not time to awake from the deceitful dream of a golden age and to adopt as a practical political maxim for the direction of our political conduct that we, as well as the other inhabitants of the globe, are yet remote from the happy empire of perfect wisdom and perfect virtue? A man must be far gone in utopian speculations who can seriously doubt that if these states should either be wholly disunited or only united in partial confederacies, the subdivisions into which they might be thrown would have frequent and violent contests with each other. To presume a want of motives for such contests as an argument against their existence would be to forget that men are ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious to look for a continuation of harmony between a number of independent, unconnected sovereignties situated in the same neighborhood would be to disregard the uniform course of human events and to set at defiance the accumulated experience of ages. The cause of hostility among nations are innumerable, including the love of power or the desire of preeminence and domination, the jealousy of power or the desire of equality and safety. Others include rivalships and competitions of commerce between commercial nations. Reflecting a realistic view of human behavior revealed that unless the Confederation gave way to a strong federal government, America would dissemble into chaos, war, and ruin. Americans had to unite right 
now. In one sense, the preamble completely underplayed what was at stake. It was not really a more perfect union. It was not a union at all. The Constitution would meet this challenge. We the people would unite under a single federal government with sufficient authority to forge a union where none really existed. By this union, the threats of foreign danger, domestic tranquility, trade wars, and all the other ills plaguing Americans would be cured. Recall that the Federalist Papers were written by Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay as a series of newspaper articles advocating for the adoption of the Constitution in New York. Not only was the series exceedingly influential in New York, but they moved public sentiment across the continent. Hamilton wrote the first Federalist paper, and in that very first paper, he explained that, I propose in a series of papers to discuss the following interesting particulars, the utility of the Union to your political prosperity, and the insufficiency of the present Confederation to preserve that Union. Hamilton and his colleagues took 85 papers to explain, among other things, how the Constitution would lead to a more perfect Union. Now, don't panic, we won't be going through all 85 papers in this episode, but the idea that the Constitution was designed to perfect the Union was a major consideration for the framers of the Constitution. Hamilton and Madison knew what the founders were thinking. They attended the convention, and Madison was rightfully later dubbed the father of the Constitution. Another leading figure at the Federal Constitutional Convention was the brilliant Pennsylvania lawyer, James Wilson. When the Constitution came before the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention for consideration, Wilson was the only member who had previously attended the Constitutional Convention. He explained in Pennsylvania's Ratifying Convention that a more perfect union was the aim of the Constitution. We now see the great end which the Constitutional Convention proposed to accomplish. It was to frame for the consideration of their constituents one federal and national constitution a constitution that would produce the advantages of good and proven inconveniences of bad government, a constitution whose beneficence and energy would pervade the whole union and bind and embrace the interests of every part, a constitution that would ensure peace, freedom and happiness to the states and people of America. Of course, the sentiments expressed by Hamilton and Wilson were accurate but vague. Skeptics would rightfully ask, how exactly was the Constitution going to make a more perfect union? Mike Gerard, you hit the nail on the head. That was the key question for many. Many believed that the Articles of Confederation were not going to keep the union together, but there were certainly alternatives to the proposed Constitution. Instead of one big nation, the states could split up into two or three smaller confederacies, or, instead of a republic, they could install a monarch, either at the head of all the states, smaller confederacies, or even state by state. These alternatives were never seriously entertained by the Constitutional Convention. Hamilton, at one point, made a six-hour speech extolling the virtues of the British system, which, of course, had a monarch. The convention respectfully listened and then totally ignored him. Instead, the Constitution maintained Republican principles and empowered the federal government with the authority it needed over the people to forge a single union. Noah Webster, yes, the Noah Webster who created the famous Webster's Dictionary, 
explained the Constitution's solution to creating a union. The Constitution is good. It guarantees the fundamental principles of our several constitutions. It guards our rights. And while it vests extensive powers in Congress, it vests no more than are necessary for our union. Without powers lodged somewhere in a single body, fully competent to lay and collect equal taxes and duties, to adjust controversies between different states, to silence contending interests, to suppress insurrections, to regulate commerce, to treat with foreign nations, our confederation is a cobweb, liable to be blown asunder by every blast of faction that is raised in the remotest corner of the United States. The founders found a way to replace the thin and frail cobweb strands with a vibrant steel mesh that would bind together the United States. David Ramsey, a preeminent South Carolina political leader in the state legislature, Congress, and the Federal Constitution Ratifying Convention, and a later renowned historian, put flesh on the bones of how the Federal Constitution would lead to a binding union with a national character. Bound together by one general government, we may defy the arts and intrigues of Europe. Commanding our own resources and acting in concert, we can form a little world within ourselves and smile at those who are jealous of our rising greatness. Their efforts against us would resemble waves dashing themselves into foam against a rock. We thereby become a nation and may hope for a national character. Hitherto our manners, customs, and dress have been related by those of Europe. But, united under one head, our people will have something original of their own from which they may copy and have the money which is now absurdly expended in following the fashions of foreign countries. These may well accord with their policy, but are apparent from ours. The Constitution would enable the creation of an American people with a distinct American culture and character. Not all viewed this vision with bliss. Those opposed to the Constitution took direct aim at the idea of creating a new union. As we heard last episode, Patrick Henry railed about the little phrase, we the people. The Anti-Federalists also took aim at this idea of a more perfect union. Henry mocked the idea of union under the Constitution and stormed that only a union that secured the rights of the people should be joined. And the Constitution in no manner secured those rights. James Madison told us that his object was union. I admit that the reality of union and not the name is the object which most merits the attention of every friend to this country. He told you that you should hear many great-sounding words on our side of the question. We have heard the word union from him. I have heard no word so often pronounced in this house as he did this. I admit that the American Union is the best of all things. But, as I said before, we must not mistake the end for the means.' 
If he can show that the rights of the Union are secure, we will consent. But it has been sufficiently demonstrated that they are not secured. Pass that government, and you will bound hand and foot. In addition to destroying the unalienable rights of the people by gutting the states of their authority and empowering Congress with direct legislative authority over the people, one anti-federalist, William Finley, wrote that the Constitution would actually result in more disunity by causing eruptions of states versus federal conflicts. What remains a state sovereignty will only tend to create violent dissensions between the state governments and the Congress and terminate in the ruin of the one or the other. The consequence must therefore be either that the union of the states will be destroyed by a violent struggle or that their sovereignty will be swallowed up by silent encroachments into a universal aristocracy. Because it is clear that if two different sovereign powers have co-equal command over the purses of the citizens, they will struggle for the spoils, and the weakest will be in the end obliged to yield to the efforts of the strongest. In the end, those in favor of ratification were able to convince the ratifying conventions that disunity under the Articles of Confederation was a much graver threat than any alleged destruction of rights or an over-domineering federal government. A union would protect domestic tranquility, allow America to be united in foreign relations, and be taken as a serious world power, secure the unalienable rights of the people, create courts, and establish a unified national market both internally and with foreign nations. The alternative would be utter disaster. The old motto of the American Revolution came back with just as much force. Unite or die. George Washington summarized the prevailing sentiment. My decided opinion of the Constitution is that there is no alternative between the adoption of it and anarchy. George Washington captured the issue perfectly. With the establishment of a constitution based on we the people, with the aim of creating a more perfect union, the rest of the preamble all but falls into place. It is simply explaining the benefits of a government by, of, and for the people united under one constitution. And so, that is the end of our explanation of the preamble. Whoa, 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 bombastic rumpasset. That's not the Patriot Lessons way, and it's certainly not what the framers thought. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bothered to have written and adopted the rest of the preamble. In fact, I take particular umbrage that the next clause would be overlooked. After all, that phrase of the preamble provides that the Constitution was being adopted to establish justice. I might know a little bit about that, having presided over more than 350 jury trials and having been on the bench for 19 years. Of course, justice is a vitally important reason to justifying the establishment of government. In fact, some thought it was the entire reason for government. No less an authority than James Madison wrote in Federalist 51 that Justice is the end of government. It is the end of civil society. It ever has been and ever will be pursued until it be obtained or until liberty is lost in the pursuit. But what exactly is justice? This is a tricky subject. 
there seems to have been two major streams of thought that the founders considered. One, let's call it substantive justice, means that the government ensures that what is fair, right, and good is achieved. To take some simple examples, substantive justice criminalizes murder, rape, and robbery. And if those laws are violated, that the perpetrator is punished in proportion to the injuries they have wrought. This idea, as so many do, began with the ancient Greek philosophers who contemplated the world and wanted to improve society by achieving the good and the right. In more modern terms, we have tried to establish a society based on the Judeo-Christian view of what is right and just. As basic examples, we believe that murder, rape, and robbery are evil, so they are criminalized with very serious punishments. The second meaning of justice, let's call it procedural justice, refers to the means and procedures for achieving substantive justice. For example, when a person is accused of murder, her throat just isn't slit on the streets. Instead, once she is apprehended, she learns of the charges, has the right to defend herself, has a right to a lawyer to defend her, has a right to a trial by jury, and a right to an impartial judge to ensure that she is tried in accordance with applicable law and rules of evidence. And if found guilty, she is sentenced on accurate information in accordance with the penalties already provided by the law. For our purposes, a deeply-seated belief in procedural justice arose from a slow but steady march over the centuries, in which procedural safeguards were established in England, which carried over to the colonies. Today, we mostly think of procedural justice in the context of the court system, and the ideas of due process that we have taken for granted today were hard fought for over the centuries. Substantive justice is the what. What is fair? Procedural justice is the how. How do we achieve substantive justice? Substantive justice could mean something as large as how resources in society are distributed, that is capitalism, socialism, a welfare state, communism, and whether any of those systems achieves justice is actually a huge debate. Likewise, substantive justice could be as narrow as whether possessing a particular plant, like marijuana or hallucinogenic mushroom, should be a crime. Procedural justice could refer to something as broad as how a government is chosen. For example, are elections conducted fairly? to something as narrow as to whether a particular question can be asked on direct examination in a criminal trial. The Anti-Federalists were the collection of people opposed to the adoption of the Constitution, and one of them wrote under the pen name Brutus. Brutus was quite learned, illuminating, and thoughtful. Although we don't know for sure, many scholars believe that Brutus was Robert Yates, who attended the Constitutional Convention on behalf of New York, and I accept this conclusion. He and fellow New York delegate John Lansing walked out of the convention when they realized that the convention was irrevocably in favor of a strong federal government. By walking out, New York no longer had a quorum and did not vote to approve the Constitution at the convention. Yates was a brilliant man who served in the Continental Congress as well as the New York judiciary as a judge and eventually on the Supreme Court. He opposed ratification of the federal Constitution in the newspapers in a series of 16 Brutus articles. It was an insightful counterattack to the Federalist Papers. On the topic of justice, he wrote that the Constitution addressed both substantive and procedural justice and that the federal courts would enforce justice under that system. The second object of the Constitution as set forth in the preamble is to establish justice. This must include not only the idea of instituting the rule of justice or of making laws which shall be the measure or rule of right, but also for the providing for the application of this rule or of administering justice under it. And under this, the courts will, in their decisions, extend the power of the government to all cases they possibly can, or otherwise they will be restricted in doing what appears to be the intent of the Constitution they should do, to wit, pass laws and provide for the execution of them for the general distribution of justice between man 
and man. In any event, the framers of the Constitution undoubtedly understood that for the Constitution to be accepted and successful, it must meet the basic need of establishing justice. The courts were the pathway to addressing this critical need. In fact, the whole point of Article 3, which we will learn is the establishment of the federal Supreme Court and lower courts, was dedicated to justice, as were certain powers given to Congress. James Wilson put it plainly, The national government is instituted to establish justice. For this purpose, Congress is authorized to erect tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, and to define and punish offenses against the law of nations and piracies and felonies committed on the high seas. The idea of establishing justice was not highly controversial. As we have discussed before, courthouses have been ransacked and valid contracts have been voided in debtor relief efforts. Most understood that in the long run, these tactics severely undermined the rule of law and justice, as well as subverted the unalienable rights of the people. Unlike the ideas embodied in We the People and In More Perfect Union, there were not significant tracts written by anti-federalists condemning the Constitution because it sought to establish justice. On the other hand, whether the federal judiciary should be composed as proposed in the Constitution is a debate for another day. Truth be told, many proponents rejoiced at the adoption of the Constitution because it was seen as the necessary step to achieving impartial justice. It would provide a pathway to finally resolve the seemingly unending controversies between the states, as well as give much-needed protection and security to the unalienable rights of the people by establishing an effective court system to vindicate their rights. The next purpose for the Constitution identified in the preamble is to ensure domestic tranquility. This topic was part of the motivation of the need to create a more perfect union. Shays' rebellion and other domestic turmoil threatened the viability of the states, and thereby the union. Sometimes hearing the summary of an opponent is more effective than hearing a proponent of the proposition. Robert Yates pithily explained what the framers were aiming at with this phrase. Another end declared is to ensure domestic tranquility. This comprehends a provision against all private breaches of the peace, as well as against all public commotions or general insurrections. And to attain the object of this clause fully, the government must exercise the power of passing laws on these subjects, as well as of appointing magistrates with authority to execute them. And the courts will adopt these ideas in their expositions. Combating insurrections, riots, mobs, and keeping the peace at home was a vital purpose for the federal government. If there was turmoil in one state that overwhelmed that state's authorities, the entire weight and power of the nation could be channeled through the federal government to stop it in its tracks. The Federalists argued that this would be rarely necessary, but if such an occasion arose, it was absolutely essential for the federal government to counteract such dreadful circumstances, either by calling up the militia or using the Continental Army. One might think this would be uncontroversial, but some believe that the states were fully capable of suppressing any internal turmoil. In fact, Brutus in his 10th paper observed that Massachusetts had put down Shays' Rebellion, and a similarly concerning incident in Pennsylvania was defeated there by local troops. It seemed that the Federalists were trying to establish a standing army in peacetime, which in England and America was historically considered to be a very grave threat to freedom. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, from his perch in Paris, completely downplayed the threat of domestic insurrection. Indeed, he thought a little rebellion now and then was necessary to preserve liberty and keep the government honest. It was better to allow, on a periodic basis, rebel blood to nourish the tree of liberty 
than to lurch too far to an overbearing government that would permanently oppress the entire continent. Jefferson elaborated in a letter to William Stephen Smith. He wrote that the prevailing opinion that the United States were threatened with impending anarchy was the result of a lying, malicious propaganda campaign of the British ministry. In fact, Jefferson surmised such an overarching threat was belied by reality. In any event, Shays' Rebellion and future such occurrences were necessary for the health of liberty. Yet, where does this anarchy exist? Where did it ever exist, except in the single instance of Massachusetts? And can history produce an instance of a rebellion so honorably conducted? I say nothing of its motives. They were founded in ignorance, not wickedness. God forbid we should ever be twenty years without such a rebellion. The people cannot be all and always well informed. The part which is wrong will be discontinued in proportion to the importance of the facts that they misconceive. If they remain quiet under such misconceptions, it is a lethargy, the forerunner of the death to the public liberty. We have had thirteen states independent eleven years. There has been one rebellion. That comes to one rebellion in a century and a half for each state. What country before ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? And what country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The remedy is to set them right as to the facts, pardon and pacify them. What signifies a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. Our Constitutional Convention has been too much impressed by the insurrection of Massachusetts, and in the spur of the moment they are setting up a kite to keep the hen-yard in order. And aside, a kite is a type of hawk, so this is the equivalent of having a fox guard the hen-house. I hope in God this article will be rectified before the new Constitution is accepted. The Federalists countered that domestic insurrections were a true threat to the unalienable rights of the people, which could lead to anarchy or, in a counter-reaction, tyranny. Jefferson was simply wrong. America dodged a deadly bullet when Shays' Rebellion collapsed. Rebutting Patrick Henry's argument that there was no need to worry about domestic tranquility, Henry Lee stood on the floor of the Virginia Ratifying Convention and bellowed. But says the Honorable Gentleman Patrick Henry, we are in peace. Does he forget the insurrection in Massachusetts? Perhaps he did not extend his philanthropy to that quarter. I was then in Congress and had a proper opportunity to know the circumstances of this event. Had Shays been possessed of abilities, he might have established that favorite system of the gentlemen, king, lords, and commons. Nothing was wanting to bring about a revolution but a great man to head the insurgents. But fortunately, he was a worthless captain. There were 30,000 standard arms nearly in his power, which were defended by a pensioner of this country. It would have been sufficient had he taken this deposit of 30,000 arms. He failed in taking the arms, but even after that failure, it was in the power of a great man to have taken it. But she lacked design and knowledge. Will you trust to the lack of design and knowledge? Suppose another insurrection headed by a different man. What will follow? 
under a man of capacity, the favorite government to that gentleman chaise might have been established in Massachusetts and extended to Virginia. Henry Lee was telling Patrick Henry, Wake up, man. America's about to go off a cliff. We need to act now. In addition, as we will learn, Article 4 of the Constitution also provides that each state is guaranteed a Republican form of government and must be protected from invasion. And that includes not just insurrections, but invasions between the states. Today, we might think this is kind of a silly threat. Michigan is not about to invade Ohio or Virginia, Pennsylvania. Whoa, 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 Judge! There was a serious incident called the Great Toledo War between Michigan and Ohio in 1835 and 1836. Although it was almost bloodless, there was a real possibility of open warfare. In fact, that's where we became the Wolverine State when the Ohioans called the Michiganders Wolverines as an insult. They're dirty, nasty creatures. But in the end, it was resolved when Ohio got Toledo, Michigan got the Upper Peninsula, and Wisconsin got... Well, screwed. Obviously, Michigan got the best end of this bargain. I love the Upper Peninsula. My family and I go up there all the time. We love camping, searching for uperlites along the lakeshore, watching the northern lights, seeing the beautiful forests. And- whoa, 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 whoa there, bombastic Brent Bassett. More important is that we also had this big thing called the Battle of Gettysburg, where the Army of Northern Virginia literally invaded Pennsylvania. And that's just one example. Throughout the Civil War, we suffered 600,000 casualties. I mean, there is just so much to talk about regarding the Civil War, including... All right, Mike Gerard, that's enough for now. I'm so sorry, our dear listeners. I tried to make a quip, and this is what we get. So yes, the threat of warfare between the states was quite credible. In the end, the Federalists prevailed in the vigorous debate over whether domestic insurrections were a true threat and the need to provide federal authority in the Constitution commensurate to address that grave threat. Some key takeaways from this episode. Under the Articles of Confederation, the states were threatened with economic chaos, internal turmoil, insurrection, trade wars, and competing foreign policies. The Constitution was intended to solve those ailments by creating a more perfect union that would unite the disparate interests of the states and people under one overarching government. Another purpose of the Constitution was to establish justice by creating a court system that would ensure that the people's unalienable rights were fairly and justly protected by the federal judiciary. By uniting the states, the Constitution was intended to ensure domestic tranquility by creating a federal government strong enough to stop insurrections, rebellions, and invasions between the states. Please join us next time when we complete our exploration of the preamble. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and bombastic Brent Bassett, who really does camp in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history, along with all the terrific and fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.